Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. Joe and I are broke. We're losing weight. And I don't have a lot of weight to lose. You know those binders that you put baseball cards in? We put credit cards in them. At this point, I am $25,000 in credit card debt. Joe is tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. So this is like make or break. We need the lifeline. That entrepreneur in need of a lifeline? That's Brian Chesky, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, a service that lets you rent a couch for the night, or a cabin, or a castle. Today, Airbnb is valued at $30 billion. Eight years ago, a very different picture. We have this website, and maybe 50 people a day are visiting it, and we're probably getting like 10 to 20 bookings a day. So, and by the way, we've been working out for a year and a half. So for anyone who's worried that your company doesn't have traction, that was our traction. It was 2008, an election year in the United States. Barack Obama was running against John McCain. You needed a tax cut then. Ryan was at the Democratic National Convention hatching a PR campaign for Airbnb, one that could rescue the company and their credit card bills. Joe and I look at each other and we said, we're airbed and breakfast. The airbeds aren't going so well. Maybe breakfast will. As we thought, what if we could sell breakfast? Maybe we can make some money. What's a non-perishable breakfast? Cereal. And so we thought, the presidential campaign's coming up. We just launched the DNC. What if we created a Barack Obama-themed breakfast cereal? And we thought, what would a Barack Obama-themed breakfast cereal be called? Obama O's, like Cheerios, the breakfast of chain. We thought, well, we want to be a nonpartisan website, so we'd also have to need a John McCain-themed cereal. And that's a no-brainer. John McCain was a captain in the Navy, and so we came up with Captain McCain's, like Captain Crunch, a maverick in every bite. We ended up making a 1,000 boxes of collectible breakfast cereal. We sold them for $40 a box. That's $40,000. Not bad for pocket change, and it got them through a cash crunch, but it came at a cost. We had to physically make the breakfast cereal ourselves, meaning we get a printed poster board and we had to fold it and hot glue it. No one told me I had a hot glue breakfast cereal. And they should call it burn glue because every time you get on you, you burn you. And I had a perfect one-to-one ratio of burn to box. And so I literally had to hot glue a thousand boxes of cereal. At one point in the middle of the night, I remember reading, I wonder if when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he had to hot glue breakfast cereal. The answer was no, and this was not a good sign. But what was a good sign was Brian's willingness to work with his hands, burns and all. I'd argue that painstaking handcrafted labor is actually the foundation of his success. In order to scale, you have to do things that don't scale. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I'm so sorry. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale.
Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. On this episode, I'll make the case that the only way an organization can truly scale is to first do things that don't scale at all. I'll try to prove that theory through stories from some of the smartest entrepreneurs I know. Over the last 20 years, I've worked on or invested in many companies that scaled to 100 million users or more. But here's the thing. You don't start with 100 million users. You start with a few. So stop thinking big and start thinking small. Hand serve your customers, win them over, one by one. Now this may sound like odd advice if you're an entrepreneur with global ambitions. Mark Zuckerberg didn't personally invite 1.8 billion people to Facebook. He built a great product And the users just poured in, right? Not exactly. On this show, I'll dispel that myth by talking to founders who fought to win their users. I'm starting with Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, because he epitomizes the idea of handcrafting the user experience before you start to scale. It's a principle he first absorbed in design school. I was doing medical design once. I designed a children's ventilator. I had to sit in the shoes of the child. And so I had to like, Imagine being a child, getting like the operating table and like you have to put yourself in the shoes of the patient or the person using your product. And if you're only doing A-B tests, like you're never designing with empathy. But a funny thing happened to Brian when he moved to Silicon Valley. He sort of forgot about designing with empathy for a single user. It's a common mistake amongst entrepreneurs with global ambitions. They have to promise investors the world. Tens of millions of customers, billions in revenue. It's intoxicating. Just listen to Brian go. This is a travel industry that is something like 7% of global GDP, somewhere between 5 and $7 trillion, 10 times the market size of Google's market size. And Brian might have stayed in the stratosphere, if not for a fateful meeting with Paul Graham, co-founder of Y Combinator. Y Combinator is a startup incubator, which cultivates and invests in early stage companies. Brian was admitted to Y Combinator in 2009, and his first meeting with Paul was confounding. Paul tends to stump people with deceptively simple questions. And he asked us, where's your business? And I go, what do you mean? Like, where's your traction? I go, well, we don't have a lot of traction. He goes, well, people must be using it. I said, there's a few people in New York using it. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, so your users are in New York and you're still in Mountain View. I said, yeah. He said, what are you still doing here? And I go, what do you mean? He said, go to your users, get to know them, get your customers one by one. And I said, but that won't scale. For hugely millions of customers, we can't meet every customer. And he said, that's exactly why you should do it now. Because this is the only time you'll ever be small enough that you can meet all your customers, get to know them, and make something directly for them. 
Brian and his co-founders followed his advice to the letter. We literally commuted to New York for Mountain View. So we would be in Wycom Air for, uh, was it Tuesday night dinners? And then Wednesday, Joe and I would go to New York. We literally would knock on the doors of all of our hosts and we had their addresses. And we say, knock, knock, hello, hey, this is Brian, Joe, we're founders, we just want to meet you. It's a little creepy just to knock on the door unannounced. We need excuses to get in their home. So they came up with an offer that the host couldn't refuse. We'd send a professional photographer to your home and photograph your home. Of course, we didn't have any money and we couldn't employ photographers. So Joe and I, we'd show up at their door and they're like, wow, this company's pretty small. These home visits became Airbnb's secret weapon. It's how they learned what people loved. It's really hard to get even 10 people to love anything, but it's not hard if you spend a ton of time with them. So if I want to make something amazing, I just spend time with you. And I'm like, well, what if I did this? What if I did this? What if I did this? From those questions, a handcrafted experience is born. We'd find out, hey, I don't feel comfortable with a guest. I don't know who they are. Well, what if we added profiles? Great. Well, what do you want in your profile? Well, I want a photo. Great. What else? I want to know where they work, where they went to school. Okay. So you add that stuff. And then you literally start designing touch point by touch point. The creation of the peer review system, customer support, all these things came from us literally. We didn't just meet our users. We live with them. And I used to joke that when you bought an iPhone, Steve Jobs didn't come sleep on your couch, but I did. <laughs> yes. Was there a particular experience that has really stuck in your mind? I remember we met with a couple hosts and it's winter. It's snowing outside. And we're like in snow boots. And we walk up to the apartment come on in. and we went there to photograph the home. And we're like, hey, I'll upload your photos to the website. Um, do you have any other feedback? And he comes back with a book. It's like a binder. And he's got like dozens of pages of notes. And he ends up creating like a product roadmap for us. Like we should have this, 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 this. And we're like, oh my God, this is our roadmap because he's the customer. And I think that always stuck in our mind as the roadmap often exists in the minds of the users you're designing things for. It is typical to get very detailed feedback from some of your early users. And if you're not getting some people who say, this is super important to me, I love this. I really need this to work well. It usually means you're off track. Passionate feedback is a clue that your product really matters to someone. And one passionate user can turn into many if you listen to them carefully. It's essential to get this kind of feedback early while you're still defining the product. It's like setting a foundation as an architect. You wouldn't build a skyscraper before you've built a solid foundation. User feedback ensures you won't build a dozen floors on an unstable swamp. Brian has a simple method for extracting detailed feedback from users. He doesn't ask about the product he already built. He asks about the product of their dreams. We'd ask these questions like, what could we do to surprise you? Like, what could we do, not to make this better, but to make you tell everyone about it? And that answer is different. If I say, what could I do to make this better? They'll say something small. If I were to say, Reed, what would it take for me to design something that you would literally tell every single person you've ever encountered? So you start to ask these questions. And it really helps you think through this problem. It's essential to seek out and listen to user feedback. But the caveat is you have to figure out which users to listen to. You're going to have different kinds of users giving you feedback. And some of it will take you in the wrong direction. So you need to exercise judgment in discerning, will this particular user and particular feedback lead me to the mass market? Or is it an edge case? For example, at LinkedIn, we had one group of users who invented a name for themselves. They called themselves Lions which is LinkedIn Open Networkers, because their theory of the world was that everyone wants to directly connect to everyone else in the world, because that's the way they wanted it. But they're actually not the majority case. 
A lot of people who are very busy, who have access to resources, who have some celebrity status, do not want that. And if we followed their feedback, LinkedIn would not be where it is today. We had to steer away from a bunch of passionate users who told us very explicitly that we were fools for not following their advice. If you want to build something that's truly viral, you have to create a total like mind experience that you tell everyone about. And so we basically took one part of our product and we extrapolated what would a five-star experience be and then we went crazy. So a one, two, or three-star experience is you get to your Airbnb and no one's there. So you knock on the door, they don't open, that's a one-star. You know, or maybe it's a three-star if they don't open, you have to wait 20 minutes. And if they never show up and you're pissed and you need to get your money back, that's a one-star, you're never using this again. So a five-star experience is you knock on the door, they open the door, they let you in. Great. That's not a big deal. You're not going to tell every friend about it. You might say, I used Airbnb. It worked. So we thought, what would a six-star experience be? A six-star experience, knock on the door. The host opens. Hey, I'm Reed. Welcome to my house. You're the host in this case. And you would show them around. And on the table would be a welcome gift. It would be a bottle of wine, maybe some candy. You'd open the fridge. There's water. You go to the bathroom. There's toiletries. And the whole thing is great. That's a six-star experience. And you'd say, wow, I love this more than a hotel. I'm definitely going to use Airbnb again. It worked better than I expected. What's a seven-star experience? Knock on the door. Reed Hoffman opened. Get in. Welcome. Here's my full kitchen. I know you like surfing. There's a surfboard waiting for you. I've booked lessons for you. It's going to be an amazing experience. And by the way, here's my car. You can use my car. And, um, you know, I also want to surprise you, but... I got you, this is best restaurant in the city of uh, San Francisco. I got you a table there. And you're like, whoa, like this is way beyond. Adding stars clearly excites Brian. It took some time to run through this mental exercise. We'll skip ahead to the 10-star experience. So what would a 10-star check-in be? A 10-star check-in would be the Beatles check-in in 1964. I'd get off the plane and there'd be 5,000 high school kids cheering my name with cars welcoming me to the country. I'd get to the front yard of your house and there'd be a press conference for me. And I would be just a mind experience. So what would an 11-star experience be? I would show up to the airport and you'd be there with Elon Musk and you're saying you're going to space. The point of the process is that maybe 9, 10, 11 are not feasible, but if you go through the crazy exercise of keep going, there's some sweet spot between they showed up and they opened the door and I went to space, that's a sweet spot. And you have to almost design the extreme to come backwards. Suddenly doesn't just like having like knowing my preferences and having a surfboard in the house seem like not crazy and reasonable. It's actually kind of crazy logistically. But this is the kind of stuff that creates great experience. But how far do you go toward the 11-star experience? To create the Nirvana product, all successful entrepreneurs at some point have to come back down to earth. There's really two stages of a startup's product. The first, design a perfect experience, and then you scale that experience, and that's it. But which part of the perfect experience do you scale? So the most ambitious entrepreneurs, let's call them the Elons after my friend Elon Musk, probably get there through raw energy because they're convinced they need to solve a problem, and the unscalable thing is one step that they have to push through on the way. The Elons say, I'm going to Mars, but first, I've got to solve this problem right in front of me. First, I need to get that rocket launched. And I need to have a business model for that first rocket, and that looks like satellites. Okay, I'm gonna try satellite launches. And how do I get my first rocket? 
I need to create a scalable rocket platform. But unless I get the first rocket up, it doesn't matter. And you kind of work back to that. Then you've got folks like Brian who say, I realize that to get this awesome experience, I have to ratchet back to something that still seems like magic, but is totally doable. And then I need to design the elements that get me into the totally doable thing. So how does Brian decide on the doable thing? He settled on a service with the appropriate level of magic and started building it. And here's the next thing to notice. They didn't launch perfectly scaled services. They built everything by hand. We had a saying that you would do everything by hand till it's painful. So Joe and I would photograph homes till it's painful. Then we get up at Arbor's. Then we'd manage them with spreadsheets till it's painful. Then we got an intern. I don't think I knew how anything would grow to the level that it did. That's Ellie Thiel. She's the intern who managed those spreadsheets. She still works at Airbnb. Very manually, I would email the photographer and the host and connect them. And the photographer would then send me the photos. Um, I would go through each one, giving feedback if they needed to be retouched. And then I would manually upload them to the host's website, their listing, one by one. It would take hours to upload. Multitasking was the name of the game. And then we automate the tools to make her more efficient. And we kind of looked at this and we said, okay, what is the easiest thing that we can automate? Any little thing that changed was, you know, quite a shift in what I had been doing, but for the better. And I remember one day, Brian would come to me at the end of every day. How many did we get? How many photos were shot? And it was like, oh gosh, I have to go through and count all of these. And then eventually a system does everything. We build a system where now a host comes, they press a button, it alerts our system, which goes to a dispatch of photographers. It's all managed through technology. They get the job, they market through an app that we build, and then payment happens. The whole thing is automated now. Note how they gradually worked out a solution. They didn't guess at what users wanted. They reacted to what users asked for. And then they met the demand through a piecemeal process. And here we come to the true art of doing things that don't scale. It's not just a crude way of succeeding on a shoestring budget. It also gives your team the inspiration and urgency to build the features that users really want. I've seen this handcrafting story play out over and over again with entrepreneurs. Take my friend Patrick Collison. He's the founding CEO of Stripe, an online payments company. Today, thousands of businesses use Stripe to process payments from their online customers. But in the early days, they were a scrappy startup, and Patrick paid close attention to his users. Very close attention. We had a chat room uh, where we would just help customers with, well, whatever issue they, they wanted to ask about. And we were very distressed after a while to notice that occasionally people would come into the chat room while we were sleeping and ask a question, and you know, they wouldn't get any response. And so we wrote a bot that would just page one of us. Uh, if somebody asked a question, they didn't get a response after more than 30 seconds or something. And someone would kind of groggily, bleary-eyed, wake up and like help them out and then go back to sleep. So in addition to being CEO, Patrick had become Stripe's bleary-eyed customer service rep. Frustrated users would page him at all hours. It sure did not feel glamorous. You're just tapping away on my laptop for half an hour in bed. Actually, it reminds me, I don't know if you know Paul English, who founded Kayak. Kayak is an online travel service that finds the lowest available rates across different websites. Uh, we, we know each other a little bit. Yeah. Paul, um, for a number of years in Kayak, had his cell phone number as the customer service number. Uh, we also had one of our, uh, there was someone at Stripe who, who did exactly the same thing. Now, it's common for entrepreneurs to swap stories like this. 
And I think it's worth dwelling on these early days of handcrafted work because most entrepreneurs tend to have a funny reaction to these experiences. They may laugh about it later. They may call the work unglamorous. They may celebrate the day they could hire a helping hand or automate these chores out of existence. But thoughtful founders will never say, what a complete waste of time. They'll often look back on this period as one of the most creative phases of their careers. Nancy Lublin, for instance, scrappily launched an international nonprofit from her New York City apartment. Her organization, Dress for Success, started as a clothing drive for women who needed to walk into a job interview looking sharp and feeling confident. Nancy stockpiled sweaters on her bed and jewelry in her refrigerator. And soon, she was inviting volunteers into her apartment for informal training sessions. So people started hearing about Dress for Success and would contact me. Just random people would contact me and say, I want to start this in St. Louis. I want to start this in Hartford. And I would say, great. You want to come stay with me? People, literally strangers, would fly from St. Louis and stay on my futon, my college futon, in my tiny, like, law school apartment in New York. And I'd be like, how can I help? And I would send them postcards, like, saying, like, don't give up. I know it's really hard. You got this. And I just killed them with kindness. Today, Dress for Success has affiliates in 145 cities worldwide. But let's be clear, the transition from the handcrafted phase to the massive scale phase is a challenging one. And I wanted to spell any illusions that you can switch from one to the other with ease. In fact, it requires two opposing mindsets. You have to fully empathize with a single user. At the same time, you have to worry about everyone. I like the way that Brian describes the difference. The designing of experience is a different part of your brain than the scaling of your experience. It's a different skill set. The scaling experience is a highly analytical, operations-oriented, technology-oriented problem. The designing of the experience is a more intuition-based, human, empathetic, end-to-end experience. One parallel might be writing and editing. So the handcrafted phase tends to be more like writing. It's a more inventive and creative process. Whereas the scaling phase tends to be more analytical. It's more like being an editor. At that point, you tend to do more pruning. You realize, well, this whole thing is magical, but if we focus on this 20%, we get 80% of the magic. So you prune, you compact, you distill, and you architect. So it can now run at a rocket ship rate. You're transitioning the product or service over to a scale organization that can now run it. The organization needs a simple plan with very few errors and very little improvisation. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Now, you might think the first step, design the ideal user experience, drops away as soon as your product goes viral. Then comes the glamorous work of expanding in new countries and thinking about your strategy in the years ahead. Handcrafted work is essentially a kind of booster rocket that helps you get in orbit, but it's not the kind of rocket for the whole trajectory. It gets you out of the gravity well, and after that, 
get ready to slingshot around the world. We became an international company. Then, middle of 2011, we raised money. We're like this billion-dollar valuation company. And then in summer 2011, a woman's home got trashed. And then we had to go to the next step, which was we are just this little company department, but as far as the world's concerned, we have a giant office building. We better be grown-ups. So we had to build 24-7 support, had to have more secure payment instruments. We had to add a trust and safety team. We had to verify people's identity. We realized we had to get our money transmission licenses. So then there's this whole like administrative bureaucracy that gets added. Then 2012, we get to the point where we have like 50, 100 employees. We have no executive team. There's no management. There's no like company meetings. There's no communication. So no one knows anything. Uh, I don't know anything. Like, like literally nothing. I don't, I don't even know how we ran the company. And so I instituted some basic things. Like I have to have an executive team. And then the lawsuits come in. And you have to really sort it out. And unfortunately, we're not regulated at the federal level. We're regulated at the city level. And every city is different. And they're like, I see what you do in Paris. But here in New York, we're different. And so you had to go city by city. You've got to hire those people to really triage and deal with all these issues. It's like a video game. You slay a dragon. You think you've completed the board game. And then you have the next level. And all of a sudden, the dragons get really big. But when you're slaying dragons, it's hard to hold on to the handcrafted mindset. Still, I would argue that the sharpest founders never fully abandon the mindset, no matter how big their company gets. And so the organization will start having antibodies against new handcrafted things. It's a response that protects organizational efficiency. It says, look, this new thing, we can't get it to scale. It won't operationalize. It won't fit within our process. The reason that scaled companies have a hard time with this handcrafted process is all in the list of objections about why this won't work, why this shouldn't be integrated as part of the company. And so what you need to do as a founder is be extremely choiceful about which handcrafted innovation you choose and how you protect it organizationally. You need to protect it because the natural reaction of the scale organization will be to kill it. He wanted to reinvent the industry again, and he knew he had more to learn about the travel experience in order to do it. Quiet on the set. So he turned to Hollywood for help. I often find that to reinvent an industry, you do not take inspiration directly from that industry, that you need to look at orthogonal industries. And for us, the orthogonal industry to travel was cinema. And the best trips you've ever seen are the trips that characters in movies have, and that we would provide that analogy in real life. And I actually literally hired a storyboard artist from Pixar. And we had him storyboard the perfect Airbnb experience. When we did that, we realized there was like this two-hour movie and only 20 minutes were in the home. And cut. There was all this like leading up to the home, getting to the airport, going around, going to dinner, hanging out with friends out and about. And like most of the trip was not in the home. But we realized at that point, we need to be in the end-to-end business of travel. So the same way that we did things that don't scale, we called it Magical Trips. We decided, let's find one traveler and create the perfect trip for them. Notice how quickly Brian turns his attention to a single traveler. In an instant, he switches from global concerns back to his artisanal roots. And that's because he's building something radically new here. He wants to scale the perfect trip. But what is the perfect trip? What are the essential ingredients that make a vacation truly memorable? It's a question that Brian can't even begin to answer until he delivers that experience to at least one person. You're about to get a masterclass in handcrafting. And so we put up these flyers anonymously saying, seeking a traveler, we'll photograph your trip to San Francisco if you let us follow you. This guy, Ricardo, replied. He was from London. Cheerio. And we sent a photographer around him 
while he was just traveling to San Francisco. What we learned was his trip was awful. Like he'd show up, he'd go to Alcatraz by himself, put on the headset, and then he'd go to Bubblegum Shrimp. He'd stay in like a like budget hotel. He'd go to a hotel bar by himself, like sitting like with a bunch of dudes at the bar. Calzone is basically a rolled up pizza. He doesn't talk to anyone because he's introverted. We call him back. We say, Ricardo, we want to create the perfect trip to San Francisco for you. We fly him back, and we had the team storyboard the perfect experience for Airbnb. We had a driver pick him up at the airport, and we took him to the perfect Airbnb. There were all these services. He went on these dinner parties. We got him the best seats at restaurants. We took him on this midnight mystery bike tour. Like 60 riders go on it, and nobody but the leader knows where they'll end up. And it's just like there was this crazy magical world. I see him at the end of the trip. I say, how was your trip? He says it was amazing. And then I walk away, yells at me, Brian, one more thing. And he starts like crying and he breaks down and says, thank you. This is the best trip I've ever had. I was like, oh my God, I guess it kind of, kind of worked. Like it really moved him because I don't think anyone ever tried to like design end to end experience for somebody like they're in a movie before. And we did it. That became a blueprint. And we said, we are confident on an unscalable basis that we know how to create a trip that deeply moves somebody. It's better than anything they've ever experienced. The question is, can we develop a technology that scales and do it 100 million times? Notice here how quickly Brian switches back to the analytic mindset. He can extrapolate from a single journey to a list of essential ingredients. Here is a systematic breakdown of the perfect trip. When you first go to city, you need a welcome event within the first 24, 48 hours where you're around people. The day, when you land, you need to get acclimated to the neighborhood. That by day two or three, you need to have a challenge out of your comfort zone. If you do not leave your comfort zone, you do not remember the trip. And if you can belong out of your comfort zone and something new happens to you, then there's going to be a moment of transformation where the person you were in a small way dies and a new, better version of yourself is reborn. Now, this is the narrative of every movie you've ever seen. A main character starts in their ordinary world. They leave their ordinary world. They cross the threshold to a new magical world where all these obstacles happen and they overcome something and they call it the hero's journey. And we applied this to trips, built a small team, and we spent the last couple of years figuring out how to scale this. And this has led to what we have today, which we call Airbnb trips. In November of 2016, Brian unveiled 500 trip packages in 12 cities. And now he's fully in the scaling mindset, figuring out how to expand the service to new destinations. But as Brian will tell you, he misses the handcrafted work. He has a surprising message for entrepreneurs who have only a handful of users to serve. I kind of tell a lot of entrepreneurs who don't have traction, I miss those times. I mean, yes, it's exciting to have traction, have a super, like, company that's like huge scale. But the biggest leaps you ever get as when you're small. And another way of saying it is your product changes less, the bigger you get. Because there's bigger, more customers, more blowback, more systems, more legacy. The most innovative leaps you'll ever make, often, especially for your network, are going to be when you're really, really small. You can change the product entirely in a week. Try doing that at LinkedIn or Airbnb today. That'd be a huge disaster. So I think taking advantage of that subscale, designing the perfect experience, asking yourself what you could do is amazing. And if you have a teeny startup, I have good news for you. Now is the moment you can take the most daring leaps of your career. Dream big and act small. Pay passionate attention to your users. Handcraft the core service for them. Create a magical experience 
and then figure out what part of that magical handcrafted thing can scale. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedney, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music is by The Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Jessica Johnston, Saida Sepieva, Elisa Schreiber, Chris Yeh, David Sanford, Stephanie Kent, and Rafina Amon. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.